Hi everyone, this is Deb from Dying to be Found. I wanted to take a moment to tell you about our true crime podcast. Every week, I pull in different family members to talk about true crime. We don't always discuss high-profile crimes, though. We leave the format completely open to your interpretation and also cover missing persons, cold cases, and other criminal activities. Starting in Season 2, we're adding bonus episodes and drop-in guests from other podcasts. You can listen to brand new episodes every Thursday and every Wednesday with our new mini-episodes called The Dash. Be sure to tune in wherever you get your podcasts and follow us on social media at Dying to be Found. Talk to you soon, tell your friends, and don't forget to leave a five-star review. The Social Detective is an independent podcast. It is for educational and awareness only. Some of the information is based on our opinion, as we will state in the podcast. Information can be triggering to some individuals, so please listen wisely. Hey guys, it's Marianne, dog mom, baker, true crime podcast maker. We're back with another episode of The Social Detective. This is one of those cases where the group that is calling themselves the BTK Task Force, so that's what they call themselves, they've been trying to attribute this case to Dennis Rader. I was hoping to hold on to this case until the anniversary of when she went missing. However, you guys know it's important to me, as it is to law enforcement and family, that the facts of cases are what stays out there. That's how you get answers. That's how these cold cases go forward. So I want to continue to do that. I also want you guys to know I don't actively seek out anything that anyone on the BTK task force is doing. I do not do that. I know certain members of the task force have blocked me on social media. That's fine. Again, I don't actively seek anything out. I do have several. I Again, I'm in the Kansas area. They are attaching themselves to a lot of cases in Kansas. I do have a lot of strong ties to victims and families in the Kansas area. Due to that, I get a lot of things shared with me. I, a lot of times, don't want to respond. It's not my circus, not my monkeys. However, if a family member of a victim requests for me to stand up, to speak up, and to say something, because What a lot of people need to realize is a lot of these families are much older. They're not wanting to say something on social media. They have lived a very difficult life. And they have always seen me as somebody when I see injustice. Yes, I shout, I scream, I yell. 
if you guys are a listener, if you follow my social media, you know that is who I am. I have learned from some of the most amazing families. You guys have seen the interviews I have had with those families. You guys will see those families. If I step out of line on my own social media, they will take me to task. They have no problems calling me out and saying, oh, Marianne, put your little butt back in line. You are not being a good advocate. They are quite comfortable in telling me when I step out of line. I have deleted podcasts. I have changed podcasts. I have publicly apologized to families. Because advocacy is not about getting paid, which we don't. Advocacy is not about getting clout. We have none. Advocacy is about one thing and one thing only. And that is the families and the victims and hoping we can lead somehow some information to the investigators on the case. That's all I want to do. And I think I went on a huge roundabout rabbit run of trying to say, I don't actively seek any of these things out. I don't try to cause any discourse. I have no public stake or any aggression towards any members except when they hurt and a family member or a family of a victim or a friend of a victim comes to me and they are upset. Then yes, I get upset. I still try to stay out of it until they ask me, aren't you going to say something? Well, then I have no choice. I have to say something because they've asked me to say something. I have to fight for them. That's a role of all of us advocates, right? We fight for the victims. We fight for their families. Whether it's fighting for answers, it's fighting for their names, their reputations, because they're not there to fight for them anymore. Again, just saying a lot to say, I don't actively search any of this out. I just want to sit, find justice, find answers, put the information out there for law enforcement, direct people to go to law enforcement for these answers. I want to bake cupcakes. I want to go to the upcoming Tallgrass Film Festival. I look forward to it every year. It's amazing. If you're in the local Kansas area, please. It is a way to support your local community. It is a way to see the incredible art that is created by these filmmakers. As you guys have seen, Aaron Moll's documentary he created on the Dolly Madison murders. Those types of things do good. These films that are created, they change the world. Also, Wolfstock is coming up. Wolfstock does amazing things for the Kansas Humane Society and helping animals in need. This is another cause that we stand behind. We will be giving to that raffle. And so we want to do things for our community. These are the things that we want to spend our time doing. Baking and playing with puppies and having happy moments. And believe it or not, we have a lot of personal turmoil going on beyond my medical issues. 
but I will continue to stand up and speak out when families request. Please remember everything you say affects them. And we need to remember to keep everything focused on the facts. If you have a theory, as when we do our podcast, our opinion, you need to always preface it as a theory, as a opinion. These things are not facts. They are your opinions. Even if you wear a badge, if it's not your state and you are not the lead investigator, it's your theory. It's your opinion until the investigative parties that are working that case are working with you. As soon as they start working with you, we will start stating your theories as facts. But until those investigators who put in the time on those cases, their lives, their years, their families on hold to investigate these cases, those are theories. They are not facts and we will not promote them. So let's get into the case of Mary Lang from Hayes, Kansas. We hope by spreading awareness of Mary Lang's case from Hayes, Kansas, we can combat some of the misinformation that's going around out there and the conspiracy theories and provide new leads for investigators that are working so hard on this case. I want to remind you guys that Mary was last seen in downtown Hayes, Kansas, the afternoon of October 21st, 1983. At the time, she had recently started working as a legal secretary for an attorney. She was taking papers to be signed when she vanished without a trace in broad daylight. Again, there is a sheriff from Osage County, Oklahoma, and I don't want to throw shade on their backyard investigative team, but it does appear that they're investigating every case except for those in Oklahoma from media reports, attempting to correlate a lot of Kansas cases to Dennis Rader. However, I want to remind you guys before we get into this case that the KBI released a statement that was quite clear, that while the Kansas Bureau of Investigation, the Ellis County Sheriff's Office, and the Hayes Police Department will continue to explore all theories in this case. At this moment, there is no evidence that links Dennis Rader to this investigation. In this statement, they also added that the investigation remains ongoing. We hope that one day they will be able to provide answers to Mary Lang's family. That's our mission today, to provide the facts of Mary's case, raise awareness, encourage listeners to share this case, and hopefully we can reach the right person who might hold some information 
who might know something that happened the day Mary Lang went missing. Mary Lang was born on September 23, 1952, to George and Lenora Lang. She was named after her grandmother. She has a brother, Paul, and two sisters, Kathleen and Barbara Jean. Lang was a beautiful, energetic, and happy woman. However, she always had a darkness settling over her life because she believed she would die young. According to a November 13, 1984 article from the Wichita Eagle and Beacon, Mary Lang kept a journal. She wrote on March 20th, 1973. I had a really wacky dream. Dreamt I was in a grocery store and someone wanted to kill me. Another entry dated September 24th, 1978, more than five years after the first entry and following a car accident that hospitalized her for three days, she stated, I was afraid to drive for a while, but finally decided if I was going to die, my number was up and there was no way I could get out of it. When God wants me, he'll get me, I'm sure. I have a strange feeling I'm going to die young. But then I really don't want to live to be old. Later that year, Lang's boyfriend, William Paul Jernigan, age 24, died of asphyxiation near Stafford while, while blowing snow had drifted over his car during a blizzard. The two of them had met at college. Lang had received her bachelor's degree in social work while attending Fort Hayes State University, and she was only one credit hour away from receiving her master's degree in counseling. During her life, she had moved to Dallas in 1980 to find work in her selected field. She attempted to support herself working as a cocktail waitress at night spending her days interviewing for jobs related to her college degree. After four months, she decided this isn't the life for her, and she returned to Hayes, Kansas. She moves into an apartment with a couple of friends. While living in Hayes, Lang found local work as a cocktail waitress and a summer intern job with the State Employment Service. Unfortunately, as things happen, friends grow up and they graduate from college, they get married, they start their own families. That left Mary Lang as the sole tenant of the apartment. Not long after that, she begins receiving obscene and harassing phone calls from an anonymous caller. This is before, you know, caller IDs and all of the technology we have now. She decides enough of this and she moves home with her parents in rural Hayes, Kansas. Around this time as well, she starts working for Tom Boone. He was a local attorney who was well acquainted with the Lang family. But it isn't long after that, around three weeks, that Mary Lang soon vanishes. 
On Friday, October 21st, 1983, Mary Lang, who at this time was 31 years old, she leaves the office at First National Bank Building, which is now called the Chester Building. It's around 1 p.m. She's going to go have a couple of lawyers sign some paperwork. She leaves to go get in her car. She's not seen again. She doesn't return to work. Tom Boone, he's like, it's two o'clock, no sign of Mary. He calls the other attorneys and he realizes she never arrived there with the paperwork. Tom Boone goes and he finds Lang's red 1977 280Z Dotson parked about half a block away from the bank building in a city parking lot. The driver's door was slightly ajar. The legal papers were laying neatly on the passenger seat. Her purse was sitting on the floorboard of the passenger side. A 1983 newspaper article states, that he decides to call the Hayes Police Department at about 5.32 p.m. Officers arrive at the parking lot and they find no signs of a struggle or a major disturbance in or around the vehicle. Also, nothing was taken from Mary Lang's purse. Now Boone says Lang was a good employee, not the type of person who would just walk off the job. Her parents say the same thing. Not one single person believed Mary would just run off to start a new life. The following Wednesday, October 26th, Mary Lang's coat, which was a brown fur coat, was found laying in a ditch beside a county road in Yosemento, seven miles north of Hayes. Her car keys were found in one of the pockets. The discovery prompted law enforcement officials to focus their search in Northwest Ellis County. I'm sorry, I keep trying to keep my accent down, but it tries to pop up. The massive search spanned more than 260 square miles of Ellis County by the 1st of November. The police spent almost a thousand hours on the investigation. However, they found no clues to Lang's whereabouts and they call off the search. Later that month, police filmed a reenactment of the disappearance. They send videotapes to at least eight television stations. Now, the investigators received several phone calls afterward but they didn't get a lot of substantial leads, nothing that really stood out as anything that led anywhere. Investigators also interviewed about 200 people. They followed up on every tip they received, even the out-of-state ones, but nothing led them to find Mary Lang. They had very little physical evidence to work with, and even though Mary disappeared in broad daylight, during a very busy time in Hayes, Kansas, no one had witnessed an abduction. Several people in the area say they saw Mary Lang approach her car around 1 p.m., but there were no further sightings of her. 
On September 21, 1987, however, skeletal remains were found under a hedge tree four miles west of Lincolnville in Marion County. That's about 155 miles southeast of Hayes, Kansas. This got investigators in Mary Lang's case, it got their attention. They thought, okay, this might be the body of Mary Lang. Marion County officials took the remains to the Kansas State University where anthropologist Michael Finnegan was working. We've talked about Michael Finnegan in one of our TikToks. He has published numerous articles on theory, method, and application of osteological analysis in population studies and forensic applications. Finnegan has received the Kansas Attorney General Certificate of Merit in recognition of outstanding service rendered to law enforcement in and for the state of Kansas by a private citizen. That's huge. He has also received K-State's William L. Stammy Teaching Award in undergraduate instruction. The John C. Hazlitt Award as an outstanding member of the Kansas Division of the International Association for Identification. He's a big deal. He's not just a random professor. He identified the body as a white female. Officials initially determined the victim to be between 22 and 26, but Finnegan says not so fast. She could have been as old as 30. Regardless, Mary Lang was five foot seven inches tall and this victim was quite a bit shorter. Police used Mary Lang's dental records for comparison, but it wasn't a match. It would take 32 years and advances in DNA technology before Kansas authorities could identify this person. The Wichita Eagle reported in December 2019 that the Kansas Bureau of Investigation identified the 22-year-old victim as Michelle E. Carnell Burton of Wichita. According to the Eagle, Carnell Burton had left her home in Cherryville, Kansas in 1986. She lost contact with her family. Now, the Kansas Bureau of Investigation says the remains of Burton, when they were identified, she was a victim of homicide. On September 21st, 1987, that's when the road crew discovered her remains. I want to get a little more into her case because her case is very important as well. Her remains were discovered off of 290th Street near Lincolnville, Kansas. Investigators determined that it was a female victim and they did know it was a murder. The type of murder initially was unsuccessful, unsuccessful excuse me, because the body was so badly decomposed. But due to Michael Finnegan, the K-State Anthropological Department, they examined the remains at the time and they were able to create a physical profile of the victim. And that's when things started to roll. In February, 2019, the DNA Doe Project 
assisted KBI agents and forensic scientists to identify this victim using DNA testing and forensic genetic genealogy searching. Investigators were able to identify a distant cousin who had submitted DNA to an online service. A family tree was constructed and determined that the victim was closely related to the Carnell family from Cherryville, Kansas. Carnell Barton lived in Wichita. She left her Cherryville home in 1986, then lost touch with her family. Anyone with information on Carnell Burton's whereabouts in June or July of 1987, because this case is still open, is asked to contact the KBI at 1-800-KS-CRIME or submit a tip, and we'll have access to be able to do that. But let's go back to Mary Lang, because Mary Lang has never been found. Her family did have her legally declared dead in 1990. Seven years after her disappearance, now enters Stephen Carl Holdren. Stephen Carl Holdren became a person of interest in Mary Lang's disappearance. He was from the Hayes, Kansas area and was previously charged with killing 21-year-old Sharon K. Leading of Bellevue on August 31, 1977. Leading had been shot in the head and face but died from strangulation. A jury found Holdren not guilty on January 25, 1979. Plainville Police had charged Holdren with making an obscene phone call which led to his arrest in 1978. According to the Bellevue Telescope, after two trials and being jailed for six months, a second Cloud County jury determined there was insufficient evidence and he was set free. However, Holdren did plead guilty to the obscene phone call charge. He was placed on probation. He pled no contest also to an indecent exposure charge in July of 1981. On July 3rd of 1984, Fort Hay State University student Jocelyn Ann Peters, 30, she checked her mail outside her first floor apartment in Hayes. Shortly after, Holdren forced his way into her apartment. He tells Peters, this is a stick up, this is a real gun. It's loaded with real bullets. I don't want to have to hurt anybody. And this is reported by the telescope. However, he struck Peters several times in the head with a 25 caliber automatic pistol before shooting her in the upper right chest. Now, neighbors heard the woman's screams and they called the police at 2.30 p.m. Then, 10 armed officers surrounded the building, guarding all the exits and evacuating the other residents in the apartment building. More officers arrive as backup to those already on the scene. Holdren surrenders at 3 p.m. Paramedics transported Peters to Hadley 
Regional Medical Center 10 minutes later. She survives and was released from the intensive care unit within a few days. Police charged Holdren with six counts, aggravated kidnapping, attempted felony murder, attempted aggravated robbery, aggravated assault, aggravated burglary, and aggravated battery. In February of 1985, Holdren pled guilty to aggravated kidnapping in return for dismissing the other five charges. The following month, he was convicted of aggravated kidnapping and sentenced to life imprisonment. He dies on February 12, 2019, at the age of 67. On the day Mary Lang vanished, Holdren was identified in being in downtown Hayes. He had accosted several women at the time. He was never charged in Mary Lang's disappearance and investigators are unsure of his involvement. Mary Lang's parents are now deceased. Kathleen married in 1996. If you have information regarding Mary Lang's disappearance, you should contact the Ellis County Sheriff's Office at 785 625-1040. Also, please do not forget, if anyone has any information on Michelle Carnell Burton's case, you can contact the KBI as well at 1-800-KS-CRIME. We want to spread awareness on either of these cases and the facts. I also would like to make a public plea. When you're on social media discussing the victims, their cases, and you are hashtagging their names, the cases, and their faces, Please remember, families Google their loved ones' names often. I know I say this a lot because it's something I do a lot in my loved one's case. Sometimes you do it because you want to see if there's movement in their case by anyone else. Sometimes you do it to see other people's theories Sometimes you do it to see if the investigators have something and they just haven't told you. Sometimes you do it just because you miss their face. You miss seeing them. You miss their name. You miss what they brought to your life. So when any of you are putting negative connotations or what a family or a loved one knows as incorrect information or you're creating a theory that would involve 
heinous violence or inviting that family and loved one to think of a very violent situation of their loved one, there are far better ways to do it. If you be truly believe that a heinous person or monster did something to him, go to the investigator with your theories. Don't post it all over the internet. It's painful and it's hurtful for those families who see it and watch that fire of spread just all over the internet and watching their loved one's face go along with it. If you have a theory, go to the investigator. If the investigator disagrees with your theory, I had a theory in my own loved one's case. I stated it and then I stopped. There aren't multitudes of posts over and over and over again with their faces pushed out there. Please. Sorry. I am asking you, please stop hurting the families. Please stop hurting the loved ones. If you have information that you think would be helpful to investigators, go to the investigators with your information. Please post with empathy. Please think of every interview you give and how you as podcasters are putting a victim's how you are putting a victim's face out there. This is not entertainment. You are wanting clicks or money. Um, this isn't the way to do it. I've started from the beginning saying that that was never the point of this. We only want justice on these cases and we want the information to go to the investigators, not to us. Never send information to us. Send it to the investigators on the cases. Every time I am contacted by a family member, and I don't ever want the families, if someone is hurting you, if you need somewhere to go and you want the right information out there and you want facts of a case out there, please reach out to me and I will always share the information the investigators want out there. I will share the correct information and I will direct people to where they need to go if they have tips. They go to the investigators and I will always always advocate for the families and the victims. And I am asking the rest of you, if you have advocate in your bio, if that is something you say you are, then please, before you click post, reread your post and say, if a family member saw this, how would they feel? Or even one step better, before you click post, reach out to the family and ask them if they are okay with this going out there.
do one better. Thank you guys for listening. Remember, if you have any information regarding Mary Lang's disappearance, you should contact the Ellis County Sheriff's Office at 785-625-1040. You might know our podcast was named Crime Scene and Cupcakes because, well, I'm the boozy baker. However, since crimes are changing because social media and everything is changing, that means we need to change with them in order to possibly assist law enforcement in getting answers. When my friend Krista Martin was murdered back on October 1st, 1989, there was barely a blurb out there on media on her case. And unfortunately, that is still the way it is to this day. It just seems to be the status quo on a lot of cases. And I refuse to allow that to happen. So that's our mission, to change that, to be the voice for those that go unheard, to be the voice and give those a social media presence. Because more than 200,000 unsolved cases have gone cold since 1980. And the people who committed those crimes, well, they could be living right next door in the same locations scattered around the world. By using social media, podcast platforms, case flyers, and hashtags, law enforcement and family are able to track the chatter and comments on certain cases. And you can join this movement by listening to our podcast, The Social Detective, on any of your streaming platforms. You can also join us on Instagram, Twitter, or I guess it's called X now, Threads, Facebook, you name it, you can find us. Join The Social Detective and the Crime Solve Movement. Help us assist law enforcement by putting a few in the win column. And I really hope Krista's case is one of them.